the singular case of captain john massey who was hanged for piracy this unhappy man whose misfortune seemed to claim singular compassion was the son of a gentleman of fortune in the country who gave him a genteel education but the disposition of the young man not being sufficiently solid to admit his living quietly at home his father procured him a commission in the army and he served with great applause as a lieutenant under the command of the duke of marlborough during the wars in flanders in the reign of queen anne on his return to england he conducted himself for some time with great decency but at length became acquainted with a woman of bad character to whom he was so much attached that he would undoubtedly have married her if his father who got intelligence of the affair had not happily broke off the connection not long after this he went with his regiment to ireland where he lived for some time in a course of continued debauchery but at length he got appointed to the rank of lieutenant and engineer in the royal african company and sailed in one of their ships to direct the building of fort the ship being ill supplied with provisions and those of the worst kind the sufferings of the crew were inexpressibly great every officer on board died except massey and many of the soldiers likewise fell a sacrifice to the scandalous neglect those who lived to get on shore drank so greedily of the fresh water that they were thrown into fluxes which destroyed them in the most rapid manner till at length only captain massey and a very few of his people were left alive and these being totally unable to build a fort and seeing no prospect of relief began to abandon themselves to despair but at this time a vessel happening to come near the shore they made signals of distress on which a boat was sent off to their relief they were no sooner on board than they found the vessel was a pirate and distressed as they had been too hastily engaged in their lawless plan rather than run the hazard of perishing on shore sailing from hence they took several prizes and though the persons made prisoners were not ill-used with cruelty mr massey had so true a sense of the illegality of the proceedings in which he was connected that his mind was perpetually tormented with the idea of the fatal consequences that might ensue at length the ship reached jamaica when mr massey seized the first opportunity of deserting and repairing to the governor he gave such information that the crew of the pirate vessel was taken into custody convicted and hanged massey might have been provided for by the governor who treated him with singular respect on account of his services to the public but he declined his generous offer through an anxiety to visit his native country on his sailing for england the governor gave his recommendatory letters to the lords of the admiralty but astonishing as it may seem instead of being caressed he was taken into custody and committed till a sessions of admiralty was held for his trial when he pleaded guilty and received sentence of death as his case was remarkable the public entertained no doubt but he would have been pardoned but a warrant was sent for his execution and he made the most solemn preparations for his approaching fate two clergymen attended him at the place of execution where he freely acknowledged his sins in general was remarkably fervent in his devotions and seemed perfectly resigned to the fatal destiny 
he suffered at execution dock on the 26th of July, 1723. Mysterious are the ways of providence. To the views of the short-sighted mortals it will appear that this man ought not to have suffered, but heaven thought otherwise, and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It seems astonishing that Mr. Masty should plead guilty at his trial when his joining the pirates was evidently an act of necessity, not of choice, and when his subsequent conduct at Jamaica proves that he took the earliest opportunity to abandon his late companions and bring them to justice. A conduct by which he seems to have merited the thanks of his country, rather than the vengeance of the laws. It is almost impossible to quit this subject, on which volumes might be written, without once more remarking on the savage inhumanity of that accursed trade to Africa, the slave trade. The trade that is born in avarice, and nursed in blood, the English nation ought to give up its bloated claim to humanity till the trade be abolished and we should blush at the idea of punishing a pirate while we openly permit a traffic that counteracts all the laws of benevolence shame on the people shame on the legislators that can longer permit the continuance of a practice so much more than hellish a practice which the fiends would blush to think of but the day of retribution may be nearer than we imagine the present state of great britain this being written on the 2nd of June, 1778, bears not the most favorable aspect, and those who are dead to all feeling for suffering of others may perhaps be alive to their own. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. Particulars respecting Philip Roach, who was hanged for piracy. This atrocious malefactor was a native of Ireland, and being brought up to a seafaring life, served for a considerable time on board some coaling vessels, and then sailed to Barbados on board a West Indiaman. And here he endeavored to procure the place of a clerk to a factor. But failing in this, he went again to sea, and was advanced to the situation of a first mate. He now became acquainted with a fisherman named Neil, who hinted to him that large sums of money might be acquired for insuring ships, and then causing them to be sunk to defraud the insurers. Roach was wicked enough to listen to this horrid tale, and becoming acquainted with a gentleman who had a ship bound for Cape Breton, he got a station on board next in command to the captain, who, having a high opinion of him, trusted the ship to his management, directing the seamen to obey his commands. If Roach had entertained any idea of sinking the ship, he seemed now to have abandoned it. But he had brought on board with him five Irishmen who were concerned in the shocking tragedy that ensued. When they had been only a few days at sea, the plan was executed as follows. One night, when the captain and most of the crew were asleep, Roach gave orders to two of the seamen to furl the sails, which being immediately done, the poor fellows no sooner descended to the deck than Roach and his hellish associates murdered them and threw them overboard. At this instant a man and a boy at a yard-arm observed what passed, and dreading a similar fate, hurried toward the topmast head, 
when one of the Irishmen named Cullen followed them, and seizing the boy, threw him into the sea. The man, thinking to effect at least a present escape, descended to the main deck, where Roach instantly seized and murdered him, and then threw him overboard. The noise occasioned by these transactions alarmed the sailors below. They hurried up with all possible expedition, but they were severally seized and murdered as fast as they came on deck, and being first knocked on the head, were thrown into the sea. At length the master and mate came on the quarter-deck when Roach and his villainous companions seized them, and tying them back to back, committed them to the merciless waves. These execrable murders being perpetrated, the murderers ransacked the chests of the deceased, and then sat down to regale themselves with liquor. And while the profligate crew were carousing, they determined to commence pirates, and that Roach should be the captain, as the reward of his superior villainy. They had intended to sail up the Gulf of St. Lawrence, but as they were within a few days sail of the British Channel when the bloody tragedy was acted, and finding themselves short of provisions, they put in at Portsmouth, and giving the vessel a fictitious name, they painted her afresh, and then sailed for Rotterdam. At this city they disposed of their cargo, and took in a fresh one. Here they were unknown and an English gentleman named Annesley shipped considerable property on board, and took his passage with them for the port of London. But the villains threw this unfortunate gentleman overboard, after they had been only one day at sea. When the ship arrived in the Thames River, Mr. Annesley's friends made inquiry after him, in consequence of his having sent letters to England, describing the ship in which he proposed to embark but Roach denied having any knowledge of the gentleman, and even disclaimed his own name. Notwithstanding his confident assertions, it was rightly presumed who he was, and a letter which he sent to his wife being stopped, he was taken into custody. Being carried before the Secretary of State for examination, he averred that he was not Philip Roach, and said that he knew no person of that name. Hereupon the intercepted letter was shown him, on which he instantly confessed his crimes, and was immediately committed to take his trial at the next Admiralty Sessions. It was intimated to Roach that he might expect a pardon if he would impeach any three persons who were more culpable than himself, so that they might be prosecuted to conviction. But not being able to do this, he was brought to his trial, found guilty, and judgment of death was awarded against him. After conviction he professed to be of the Roman Catholic faith, but was certainly no bigot to that religion since he attended the devotions according to the Protestant form. He was hanged at execution dock on the 5th of August, 1723, but was so ill at the time that he could not make any public declaration of abhorrence of the crime for which he suffered. The cases of William Deuce and James Butler, who were hanged for robbery. Deuce was a native of Wolverhampton, and by trade a buckle-maker, which he followed some time in London, but being imprisoned in Newgate for debt, he there made connections which greatly tended to the corruption of his manners. 
he was no sooner at large than he commenced footpad and in company with another man robbed a gentleman in chelsea fields of four guineas after this he connected himself with john dyer and james butler in concert with whom he committed a variety of robberies their plan was to go out together but one only to attack the party intended to be robbed but to give a signal for his accomplices to come up if any resistance should be made after committing a variety of robberies in the neighbourhood of london they joined in a scheme with four other villains to rob lady chudley between hyde park corner and kensington but her ladyship's footman shot one of the gang named rice through the head which prevented the intended depredation their robberies had now been so numerous that the neighbourhood of london became unsafe for them wherefore they went on the portsmouth road where they committed a variety of robberies and even proceeded to the perpetration of murder with a view to prevent detection meeting mr bunch a farmer near a wood on the roadside they robbed him of his money and then dragging him into the wood they stripped him and deuce firing at him with a pistol the ball lodged in his mouth they now imagined the man was dead and were about to depart when mr bunch turning butler loaded another pistol in order to dispatch him on which he begged that they would yet spare his life but finding that they entertained no sentiments of compassion he exerted all his strength and springing on his legs ran off and alarming the inhabitants of an adjacent village immediate pursuit was made after the villains all of whom were apprehended except deuce who escaped and got to london darker wade and meads three of the gang were hanged at winchester but butler was sent to take his trial at the old bailey for robberies committed in the county of middlesex james butler was the son of reputable parents of the parish of st anne soho and apprenticed to a silversmith but being of an ungovernable disposition, his parents were obliged to send him to sea. After making several voyages as an apprentice to the captain, he ran away from the ship at Boston in New England, and went to New York, where he entered on board another ship, from which he likewise ran away, and embarked on a third vessel bound to Martinico. But he also quitted this on a dispute with the captain, and then sailed to Jamaica, where he was impressed into the Royal Navy and served under the celebrated Admiral Vernon. On his return to England he married a girl of Wapping, and having soon spent the little money he brought home with him, he engaged with the gang we have mentioned, with whom he was likewise concerned in several robberies. These appeared to have been very desperate villains. On the road to Gravesend they stopped four gentlemen, who, refusing to be robbed, Meads, one of those hanged at Winchester, shot a servant who attended them in the breast so that he died in a few days. Disappointed of their booty in this attempt, their passions were so irritated that, meeting a gentleman on horseback, they fired and wounded him in the head and the breast, and the next day he expired. They committed other robberies attended with circumstances of cruelty, but it will be now proper to mention those for which they suffered. 
Butler, having been acquitted at the Old Bailey of the crime for which he had been transmitted from Winchester, he and Deuce and Dyer immediately renewed their depredations on the road. Meeting with Mr. Holmes near Buckingham House, they robbed him of his money, hat, and handkerchief, which laid the foundation of one of the indictments against them. On the following evening they stopped a hackney coachman near Hampstead, and robbed him of nine shillings, after the coachman had told them that the words stand and deliver were sufficient to hang a man. Jonathan Wilde, being informed of these robberies, caused the offenders to be apprehended at a house kept by Deuce's sister. Dyer being admitted in evidence, Deuce and Butler were brought to their trial, when the latter pleaded guilty to both the indictments, and the former, after spending some time in denying the robberies and arraigning the conduct of Jonathan Wilde, was found guilty, and both of them received sentence of death. After conviction their behaviour was more resigned and devout than could have been expected from men whose repeated crimes might be supposed to have hardened their hearts. But death appeared to them in all its horrors. Butler was a Roman Catholic and Deuce a Protestant. The latter was urged by the ordinary to discover the names of some of his old accomplices, but this he refused to do because they had left their practices and lived honest lives. A few moments before they were launched into eternity, Butler declared that the circumstances of cruelty with which their crimes had been attended gave him more pain than the thoughts of death, and Deuce acknowledged the enormity of his offences, and begged the forgiveness of all he had injured. They were hanged at Tyburn on the 14th of August, 1723. The life and transactions of Humphrey Angier, who is hanged for robbery. This offender was a native of Ireland, and born near Dublin, but his parents, removing to Cork, put him apprentice to a cooper in that city. He had not been long in this situation before his master desired to get rid of him on account of his untoward disposition. Being discharged from his service, he lived the life of a vagabond for two years, and his father, apprehending that he would come to a fatal end, brought him to England in the eighteenth year of his age. Still, however, he continued his dissipated course of life, till having gotten considerably in debt, he enlisted for a soldier to avoid being lodged in prison. As this happened in the year 1715, he was sent to Scotland to oppose the rebels but robbing a farmer in that country, he was punished by receiving five hundred lashes in consequence of the sentence of a court-martial. The rebellion being ended, Angier came to London and obtained his discharge. Here he became acquainted with William Deuce, mentioned in the preceding article, and married a sister of Deuce at an alehouse in the verge of the fleet. After this he enlisted for a soldier, and the regiment being ordered to Vigo, he took his wife with him. And when the greater part of the Spaniards had abandoned the place, Angier obtained a considerable sum by plunder. On his return to England he became acquainted with Butler's associates, and concerned with them in several of their lawless depredations, but refused to have any share in acts of barbarity. Angier now kept a house of ill fame, which was resorted to by other thieves, and one night after they had been out on one of their exploits, one Meads, 
whose name we have before recorded, told the following horrid tale. Quote, we have been out, and the best fun of all was an engagement with a smock-faced shoemaker whom we met on the Kentish Road. We asked him how far he was going, and he said he was just married and going home to see his relations. After a little more discourse, we persuaded him to turn a little out of the road to look for a bird's nest. But as soon as we got him a little out of the road, we bound and gagged him, after which we robbed him, and were going away. But I, being in a merry humour, wanted to have a little diversion, turned about with my pistol, and shot him through the head." Bad as Angers was, in other respects, he was shocked at this story, and told his companions that there was no courage in cruelty, and from that time refused to drink with any of them. After this, Angers kept a house of ill-fame near Charing Cross, letting lodgings to thieves, and receiving stolen goods. While in this way of life, he went to see an execution at Tyburn, and did not return till four o'clock the next morning. And in his absence an incident arose which was attended with some troublesome consequences. A Dutchwoman, meeting with a gentleman in the street, conducted him to Angers' house, where he drank so freely that he fell asleep, when the woman robbed him of his watch and money, and made her escape. The gentleman awakening, when Angier returned, charged him with the robbery, and in consequence of which he was committed to prison, but soon afterwards discharged, the grand jury not finding the bill against him. Not long after he got free from this trouble, his wife was indicted for robbing a gentleman of his watch and a guinea, but had the good fortune to be acquitted in defect of evidence. The following accident happened about the same time, a woman named Turner had drank so much at Angers' house that he conducted her up to bed, but while he was in the room with her his wife entered like a fury, demanding how Turner could presume to keep company with her husband, attacked and beat the woman. William Deuce being in the house went up to interfere, but the disturbance was by this time so great that it was necessary to send for a constable. The officer no sooner arrived than Mrs. Turner charged Angier and his wife with robbing her, on which they were taken into custody and committed. But when they were brought to trial, they were acquitted, as there was no proof of any robbery to the satisfaction of the jury. Dyer, who was evidence against Deuce and Butler, as mentioned in the preceding narrative, lived at this time with Angier as a waiter and the master and man used occasionally to commit footpad robberies together, for which they were several times apprehended and tried at the Old Bailey, but acquitted because the prosecutors could not swear to their persons. Azure's character now grew so notorious that no person of common decency would be seen in his house, and the expenses attending his repeated prosecutions were so great that from these united causes he was compelled to decline business. After this, however, he kept a gin shop in Shorts Gardens, Drury Lane, and this house was frequented by company of the same kind as those he had formerly entertained, and among the rest Parson Lindsay. 
Lindsay, having prevailed on a gentleman to go to this house, made him drunk, and then robbed him of several valuable articles. But procuring himself to be admitted in evidence, charged Angere and his wife with the robbery. But they had again the good fortune to escape, because the character of Lindsay was by this time so infamous that the court and jury paid no regard to anything that he said. Not long after this, Mrs. Angere was transported for picking a gentleman's pocket, and her husband was convicted on two capital indictments, the one for robbing Mr. Lewin, the city marshal near Hornsey, of ten guineas and some silver, and the other for robbing a wagoner near Knightsbridge. On both these trials, Dyer, who was connected in the robberies, was admitted in evidence against Angere. After conviction, Angier was visited by numbers of persons whose pockets had been picked of valuable articles in hopes of getting some intelligence of the property they had lost. But he told them that he was never guilty of such mean actions as picking of pockets, and he said that none of his associates ever followed this practice. But one Hugh Kelly was transported for robbing a woman of a shroud which she was carrying home to cover her deceased husband. Angier's father died of a broken heart soon after he heard of his commitment. While under sentence of death, he behaved with great penitence, confessed his crimes. He said he had never been happy in the commission of them, and expressed a willingness to die as what he hoped might be a compensation for his sins. He was executed at Tyburn on the ninth of September, 1723, just before he was turned off, advised young people to be obedient to their parents, as a failure in that important duty was the first step to his destruction. Account of Richard Parvin, Edward Elliot, Robert Kingshill, Henry Marshall, Edward Pink, John Pink, and John Ansell, commonly called the Waltham Blacks who were hanged for murder. The action of these offenders became so much the object of public notice that it was deemed proper to frame a particular act of Parliament in order to bring them to justice. Having blackened their faces, they went in the daytime to the parks of the nobility and gentry, whence they repeatedly stole deer, and at length murdered the Bishop of Winchester's keeper on Waltham Chase and from the name of the place, and their blackening their faces, they obtained the name of the Waltham Blacks. The following is the substance of the Act of Parliament on which they were convicted. Quote, any person appearing in any forest, chaise, park, and etc., or in any high road, open heath, common or down, with offensive weapons, and having his face blacked or otherwise disguised, or unlawfully and willfully hunting, wounding, killing or stealing any red or fallow deer, or unlawfully robbing any warren and etc., or stealing any fish out of any river or pond, or, whether armed, and disguised or not, breaking down the head or mound of any fish-pond, whereby the fish may be lost or destroyed, or unlawfully and maliciously killing, maiming, or wounding any cattle, or cutting down, or otherwise destroying any trees planted in any avenue, or growing in any garden, orchard, or plantation. 
for ornament, shelter, or profit, or setting fire to any house, barn, or outhouse, hovel, cock, mow, or stand of corn, straw, hay, or wood, or maliciously shooting any person in any dwelling house or other place, or knowingly sending any letter without any name, or signed with a fictitious name, demanding money, venison, or other valuable thing, or forcibly rescuing any person, being in custody for any of the offences before mentioned, or procuring any person by gift or promise of money or other reward to join in any such unlawful act, or concealing or succouring such offenders, when by order of counsel and etc. required to surrender, shall suffer death. End quote. The offence of deer stealing was formerly only a misdemeanour at common law but the act of parliament above mentioned has been rendered perpetual by a subsequent statute it therefore behooves people to be cautious that they do not endanger their lives while they think they are committing what they may deem an inferior offence we will now give such particulars as we have been able to obtain respecting the malefactors in question richard parvin was heretofore the master of a public-house in portsmouth which he kept with reputation for a considerable time, till he was imprudent enough to engage with the gang of ruffians who practised the robbing of noblemen's and gentlemen's parks through the country. The reader is already apprised that it was the custom of these fellows to go disguised. Now a servant-maid of Parvin's, having left his house during his absence, had repaired to an alehouse in the country and Parvin calling there on his return from one of his dishonest expeditions, the girl discovered him, and in consequence of which he was committed to Winchester jail by the mayor of Portsmouth till his removal to London for trial. Edward Elliot was apprenticed to a tailor at Guildford, and was very young when he engaged with the gang whose orders he implicitly obeyed till the following circumstance occasioned his leaving them. Having met with two countrymen who refused to enter into the society, they dug holes in the ground and placed the unhappy men in them up to their chins. And had they not been relieved by persons who accidentally saw them, they must have perished. Shocked by this deed, Elliot left them, and for some time served a lady as a footman. But on the day the keeper was murdered, he casually met them in the fields, and, on their promise that no harm should attend him, he unhappily consented to bear them company. Having provided themselves with pistols, and blackened their faces with gunpowder, they proceeded to their lawless depredations, and while the rest of the gang were killing of deer, Elliot went in search of a fawn. But while he was looking for it, the keeper and his assistants came up and took him into custody. His associates were near enough to see what happened, and immediately coming to his assistance, a violent affray ensued, in which the keeper was shot by Henry Marshall, so that he died on the spot, and Elliot made his escape. But he was soon afterwards taken into custody, and lodged in the jail of Guilford. Robert Kingshill, who was a native of Farnham in Surrey, was placed by his parents with a shoemaker, 
but being too idle to follow the profession, he was guilty of many acts of irregularity before he associated himself with the Waltham blacks with whom he afterwards suffered. While he was in bed on the night preceding the fatal murder, one of the gang awakened him by knocking at his window, on which he arose and went with him to join the rest of the deer-stealers. Henry Marshall was a man distinguished for his strength and agility. We have no account of the place of his birth or the manner of his education, but it is reasonable to think that the latter was of the inferior kind, since he appears to have been chiefly distinguished by his skill in the vulgar science of bruising. He was once the occasion of apprehending a highwayman who had robbed a coach by giving him a single blow which broke his arm. He seems to have been one of the most daring of the Waltham blacks, and was the man who shot the chaise-keeper as above mentioned. Edward Pink and John Pink were brothers, who spent the former part of their lives as carters at Portsmouth, and had maintained the character of honest men till they became weak enough to join the desperate gang of deer-stealers. It now remains to speak only of James Ansell, who likewise lived in Portsmouth. We are not informed in what way he had originally supported himself, but for some years before he joined the desperate gang above mentioned he was a highwayman, and had been connected with the Waltham blacks about two years before the commission of the murder which cost them their lives. By a vigilant exertion of civil power, all the above-mentioned offenders were taken into custody, and it being thought prudent to bring them to trial in London, they were removed thither under a strong guard and lodged at Newgate. On the 13th of November, 1723, they were brought to their trial in the court of King's Bench, and being convicted on the clearest evidence, were found guilty and sentenced to die and it was immediately ordered that they should suffer on the fourth of the next month. One circumstance was very remarkable on this occasion. The judge had no sooner pronounced the sentence than Henry Marshall, the man who had shot the keeper, was immediately deprived of the use of his tongue, nor did he recover his speech till the day before his death. After passing solemn sentence, the convicts behaved in a manner equally devout and resigned, were regular in their devotions, and prepared themselves for eternity with every mark of unfeigned contrition. They received the sacrament before they left Newgate, acknowledged the justice of the sentence against them, and said they had been guilty of many crimes besides that for which they were to suffer. At the place of execution they were so dejected as to be unable to address the populace, but they again confessed their sins, recommended their souls to God, beseeching his mercy through the merits of Christ with the utmost fervency of devotion. These malefactors were hanged at Tyburn on the 4th of December, 1723. The End of Part 9 